redistricting and gerrymandering. Those are the kind of things that don't sound sexy. Sounds sexy to me. <laughs> they would. I need to uh, get out more, don't I? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Redistricting I'm sex. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. <laughs> and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, in Cottage Grove on KSO, and in Eugene on KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. At least, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. So something seemingly very interesting may have occurred on Tuesday in two Supreme Court oral arguments regarding Partisan gerrymandering cases, one by uh, Democrats in Maryland and one by Republicans in North Carolina. This could be very interesting. Uh, and of course, it's all made somewhat more interesting by the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger, the, uh, the former governor of California, of California, showed up at the Supreme Court to and, and he had a few thoughts on uh, on gerrymandering. It is a uh, national scandal of what's going on with the gerrymandering and the way our politicians draw the district lines. And both of the parties, I've said earlier, are doing it. Democrats are gerrymandering, Republicans are gerrymandering. And really, it is a disservice to the people. It is uh, not a representative government, but it's a misrepresentative government. A misrepresentative government. Well, there you go. Well Pretty said, well said, Arnold, yeah. So... No, Arnold will not be joining us on the show today, but I wanted to play that clip because going into those hearings on Tuesday in these two cases on redistricting, on gerrymandering, as as we've discussed with experts on this show, there was a lot of concern that the new five to four right wing majority on the court would finally declare that partisan gerrymanders, unlike racial gerrymanders, the partisan gerrymanders are just fine. No problem. Not at least not our problem here at the court. Let the states figure it out. Let the legislatures figure it out. The same ones who created this problem 
Let them do it. It's not unconstitutional after all, as the lower courts have said. That was the concern. Everyone seemed to feel that last year, when similar cases were heard by the court, that Justice Anthony Kennedy would finally join with the liberals on the court uh, in a five to four majority to declare partisan gerrymanders unconstitutional as Arnold Schwarzenegger would like them to do and as uh, so many lower courts now already have. But then Justice Kennedy retired and he was replaced by the hard right Brett Kavanaugh. And 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 everything they essentially the court essentially punted until this year when these two new cases uh, came up on Tuesday to be heard by the court. Now, if reports out of the hearings yesterday at SCOTUS are correct, the outcome to those two cases could be very different than expected. We'll be joined in a bit by the counsel from the uh, plaintiffs in one of those cases heard at the Supreme Court yesterday to get her take on what happened in the courtroom at the Supreme Court. And yes, it could be kind of sexy. Though, uh, don't get your hopes up, Desi. <laughs> I, I know you're a glass half empty kind of person. You don't want to get too excited. Yeah, I, I, I like to manage my expectations, yes. especially the prospect of something hopeful happening these days. So yeah, don't get any don't get any big ideas yeah. there. Uh, but we'll see uh, how, of course, however, the Supreme the Supreme's rule here and we'll get those rulings probably in June. This could all have a huge impact on the 2020 elections and, of course, the next 10 years thereafter since redistricting will take place thereafter once again in all 50 states following the 2020 census. But, you know, there may be something else that will have a huge effect on the 2020 elections. The findings of the Robert Mueller special counsel report, whatever they are and if ever we are allowed to see them, not only because of the obvious effect on Donald Trump's political life, but also this point that election law expert Rick Hassan uh, points out this week at Slate following the release of Trump Attorney General William Barr's four-page summary of Mueller's two-year special counsel probe uh, that some call a, a cover-up, not the special counsel, but Barr's summary of the report. The special counsel's probe into Russian interference in the 2016 election, any Trump campaign coordination with it, and, of course, any obstruction of justice by Trump to stop that probe. Well, Hassan writes that uh, Barr's four-page summary leaves open many questions that cannot be answered until the Department of Justice releases the report itself. At the top of my list of unanswered questions, says Hassan, is why Mueller declined to prosecute former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort or Donald Trump's son, Donald Jr., for violating laws prohibiting the solicitation of foreign contributions to American campaigns. Based on those campaign uh, surrogates June 2016 meeting with Russian agents at Trump Tower, how Mueller answered this question could have profound ramifications for what federal law enforcement will do to stop foreign involvement, if anything, uh, that they might do in the upcoming 2020 elections. And yet we don't know anything about this. And so set aside for a minute the the idea of conspiring with Russia or, uh, you know, all that all that nonsense. This is just a question of 
the 2020 elections and how law enforcement will enforce existing campaign laws. Hassan writes, in advance of that Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016, we know that Trump Jr. got an email from his friend Rob Goldstone saying that the, quote, crown prosecutor of Russia had, quote, offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your father. This, quote, high level and sensitive information Uh, according to the emails, was being presented as, quote, part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. Trump Jr. replied almost immediately, saying that if it's what you say it is, I love it. The meeting then took place on June 9, 2016. It included Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, who was Trump's uh, campaign chair at the time, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, Goldstone, that guy who reached out to... uh, to uh, Don Jr. and a number of Russians who were connected with the Russian government. Now, Hassan says it sure looked like at least Trump Jr. and perhaps others at that meeting committed a crime. Federal law makes it a potential crime for any person to solicit, that is expressly or impliedly ask for, the contribution of, quote, anything of value from a foreign citizen. So he's saying that in accepting this meeting, that alone uh, is a violation of federal law because uh, he was asking for something of value. He says Trump's I love it comment could well constitute solicitation of that thing of value and that there is a very strong argument to be made that very high level and sensitive information, as it was described, coming from the government of Russia is also a thing of value at least for purposes of federal campaign finance law. The FEC, Federal Election Commission, has said that providing, for example, free polling information to a candidate is a thing of value. It has said that when Grover Norquist's Americans for Tax Reform gave a list of conservative activists in 37 states to the Bush-Cheney campaign back in 2004, that that was a thing of value which had to be reported by the campaign, even though the list had previously been publicly posted on the group's website. It was still a thing of value. It still needed to be reported to the FEC. The FEC has also said that Canadian campaign literature, which an American candidate wanted to borrow from in his own campaign, that that is a thing of value, even if its value is, quote, nominal or difficult to ascertain. Opposition research provided by a political group to Republican candidates can count as an in-kind contribution. And a federal court in the prosecution of New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez said that a thing of value need only have subjective value to the recipient. Well, I would think, obviously, dirt on Hillary Clinton from the crown prosecutor of Russia would certainly have value to the recipient, in this case, the Trump campaign. Hassan notes that despite this seemingly strong case, Mueller never indicted Trump Jr. or anyone else for federal campaign finance violations. Indeed, according to Attorney General Barr's letter, character, uh, his characterization of the Mueller report, quote, the special counsel did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated 
with the Russian government in these efforts, despite multiple offers from Russian-affiliated individuals to assist the Trump campaign. So there were multiple offers from these Russian individuals to assist the uh, campaign. Seemingly, Don Jr. took them up on at least one of them in this meeting, and yet no federal campaign uh, violations? By January, it appeared inevitable, Hassan writes, that Mueller was going to pass on charging any Americans at the Trump Tower meeting with a campaign finance crime. That was uh, back when the special counsel charged longtime Trump confidant Roger Stone with making false statements to Congress, obstructing justice and witness tampering. But he did not bring up anything, did not include any allegations that uh, a senior Trump campaign official was directed to contact Stone about damaging information that WikiLeaks had regarding the Clinton campaign. That, too, would be a thing of value from a foreign citizen, in this case, Julian Assange. Stone wrote to his uh, WikiLeaks intermediary, about this, about being directed to contact Stone, and yet Stone was not charged for that. So Mueller, at least Mueller, we'll see if anybody else does, but so far Mueller has declined to bring these kind of charges. Nonetheless, in 2011, then D.C. Circuit Judge, now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, you may have heard of him, he wrote to affirm the constitutionality of laws that were against foreign spending and contributions in a case where he said it is fundamental to the definition of our national political community that foreign citizens do not have a constitutional right to participate in and thus may be excluded from activities of democratic self-government. It follows, therefore, that the U.S. has a compelling interest in limiting the participation of foreign citizens in activities of American democratic self-government and in thereby preventing foreign influence over the U.S. political process. That was Brett Kavanaugh, who's now a Supreme Court justice, saying that foreign uh, information like that cannot be uh, used, cannot be offered, cannot be proffered hmm. and yet, by an American campaign. And yet Mueller did not indict anybody right. on that. Yeah. Hmm. So the Supreme Court has gone to uh, affirm all of these uh, laws. And yet Hassan says, has Mueller now concluded the opposite to let someone off the hook who solicited, quote, very high level and sensitive information from a hostile government? He says that would turn the First Amendment, the claims that, oh, this is that they have a First Amendment right to talk to whoever they want. He says that would turn the First Amendment into a tool to kill American sovereignty and democracy. If this is what Mueller concluded, Hassan writes, we need to know because it means that Department of Justice officials will not see the need to stop any foreign governments from sharing information, even information obtained from illegal hacking, with campaigns for the purposes of influencing the 2020 election. Hassan says there it could be that Mueller had other less troubling reasons uh, for not charging Trump Jr. with solicitation here. Maybe he thought uh, I love it was not clear enough when Don Jr. wrote that. Maybe he construed federal campaign finance laws so that Russian information did not count somehow as a thing of value. Or maybe he was just exercising prosecutorial discretion over political amateurs like Trump Jr., thinking, well, he didn't know. Trump Jr. had no idea that that was unlawful. 
But uh, Hassan notes that that could hardly be applied to campaign veteran Paul Manafort. So Mueller's reasoning here, he says, matters. Therefore, yes, another reason why we need to see the full Mueller report. And it matters less for what it says about 2016, argues Hassan, but what it says about free and fair elections in 2020 and beyond. Good point. Also, regarding fair elections in 2020 and beyond, whether or not extreme partisan gerrymandered uh, maps will be allowed to stay in place in a whole bunch of key states around the country, particularly since those elected in 2020 will be drawing new district maps to be used for the next decade after the 2020 census. What we have learned about uh, that uh, after last year's blue tsunami about the uh, gerrymanders around the country following the uh, blue tsunami tsunami in the 2018 elections and what we have learned from this week's Supreme Court hearings in two related cases. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Red rain, blue tsunamis. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Democrats won more votes, regained control of the U.S. House, and flipped hundreds of seats in state legislatures during the 2018 elections. Remember those? It was, by most accounts, a very good year for the party, yet it wasn't as bad as it could have been for Republicans who, according to a new mathematical analysis by the Associated Press, may have benefited from a built-in advantage in a number of states based on how political districts were drawn that prevented even deeper losses for the Republicans in some states or helped them hold on to power in others. The AP's analysis indicates that Republicans won about 16 more U.S. House seats than would have been expected based on their average share of the vote in congressional districts across the country last year. In state House elections, Republicans' structural advantage might have helped them hold on to as many as seven chambers across the country that otherwise would have flipped to Democrats. That according to the AP analysis, the AP examined all U.S. House races and about 4,900 state House and Assembly seats up for election last year using a statistical method of calculating partisan advantage that is designed to flag cases of potential political gerrymandering. A similar analysis also showed a GOP advantage back in the 2016 elections as well. The AP used the so-called efficiency gap test in part because it was one of the analytical tools cited in a Wisconsin gerrymandering case that went before the U.S. Supreme Court back in 2017 and is now part of a North Carolina case argued on Tuesday 
before the Supremes. In that case, uh, justices will decide whether to uphold a lower court ruling that struck down North Carolina's entire congressional district map as unconstitutional, as an unconstitutional political gerrymander that favored Republicans. The high court also heard arguments on Tuesday on whether Democrats in Maryland unconstitutionally gerrymandered one congressional district in 2011 in Maryland in order to defeat a longtime Republican incumbent. The U.S. Supreme Court has never struck down districts because of excessive partisan manipulation. And this uh, efficiency gap formula is no guarantee that they will start doing so now. During uh, the arguments in the Wisconsin gerrymandering case back in 2017, Chief Justice John Roberts called this uh, formula, quote, sociological gobbledygook. Oh. Plaintiffs in the North Carolina case say, however, now is the time for the court to end highly partisan gerrymandering with the next round of redistricting set to follow the 2020 census. Love Caesar, a student at North Carolina uh, A&T State University who works with Common Cause, an advocacy group that is uh, a lead plaintiff in one of the cases before the Supreme Court this week, said gerrymandering as a whole cheats voters out of our representation. The AP's analysis found North Carolina Republicans won two or three more congressional seats than would have been expected based on their share of the vote using this formula last year in the state. Republican candidates received 51 percent of the two-party vote compared to Democrats 49 percent, so pretty close. Nonetheless, Republicans won a nine to three seat advantage over Democrats in uh, in Congress uh, from the North Carolina delegation. There's one seat that is uh, still undecided because of the allegations of GOP absentee ballot election fraud in the state's ninth congressional district, as we've covered on this show once or twice since last November. But otherwise, uh, they would have had a 10 to three seat advantage again as they have for the past decade, even though Republicans just last year received only 51 percent of the vote to uh, the Democrats, 49 percent. Democrats say that this illustrates the effect of Republican gerrymandering, and they cite Caesar's own university, a historically black college in Greensboro, as, as one example. Republicans in the General Assembly divided the school itself put the district line right through the school of historically black college. Correct. When they drew the congressional map back in 2011, this dispersed Democratic leaning voters uh, into two different Republican leaning districts uh, that extend from Greensboro in way out into more rural districts. More, more rural areas uh, in the district. The congressional districts that split the campus are both represented by Republicans. Funny how that turns out. North Carolina A&T student uh, Kyle Guion, who also works with Common Cause, says it's hard to explain to students who are already skeptical about the voting process that the state intentionally diluted their power in voting by putting this uh, line right back here in between our campus. Republican lawmakers concentrated Democrats in other congressional districts in the only three districts that Democrats won last November. They carried at least 70 percent of the two party votes. 
So they got a lot more votes than would be needed to win the seats because they've all been packed together. That's the strategy known as packing and cracking, packing all the Democrats into a few districts, cracking other districts so as to weaken or dilute the Democratic vote like they did right down the middle of this uh, school line. This is not only a problem in uh, North Carolina, of course. The AP analysis finds other states that consistently had sizable Republican advantage in their congressional elections during both 2016 and 2018. Those states would include Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin, Alabama, and Texas, all places where the GOP uh, was in charge of redistricting after the 2010 census. And, of course, it's not only a problem in Republican states. The analysis also found that Massachusetts, for instance, showed a consistent Democratic tilt in its congressional districts under the efficiency gap test. And, of course, in states like Maryland, where the Supreme Court heard argument on Tuesday related to a congressional district drawn specifically to unseat a Republican incumbent in Pennsylvania. The Democratic State Supreme Court last year redrew the congressional map for the 2018 elections after striking down the Republican-drawn versions as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders at the state level. The AP's analysis found that the Republican tilt was cut by more than half when that happened from 2016 to 2018. The congressional delegation in Pennsylvania went from a 13 to 5 GOP majority to an even split of nine seats each for Republicans and Democrats once fair maps were drawn. This was also a problem in state House and assembly districts in Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, South Dakota. Uh, It gave a consistent Democratic edge in Nevada. So this is a problem all over the country. And Democrats over the past couple of years have made a hard press to push for ballot initiatives to create independent commissions to redistrict in states, uh, whether done by ballot initiative or finding a consensus among lawmakers to do so. But the legal challenges to existing gerrymanders continues in the courts over what seems a ridiculously long period. For the last 10 years, these have been in place. The Supreme Court heard challenges to two such cases this week, and going into the oral arguments, it was believed by voting rights advocates and Republicans alike that the court now was likely uh, to see a 5-4 to four right-wing majority that will finally rule in favor of this, this type of partisan gerrymandering. But according to those in the courtroom on Tuesday, there was a surprise, or at least one surprise, from at least one of the conservative justices that could change the expected outcome in favor of voting rights advocates. An attorney for one of the plaintiffs in one of those two cases who was at Tuesday's oral arguments at SCOTUS joins us next on the Bradcast to explain this could be good news. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Uh-huh. You 
Here, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. So, no, it is not your imagination. There really was a time when Republicans were firmly against partisan gerrymandering. Seriously. The idea of creating state legislative and congressional maps that favor the party in power who drew the maps. If you don't believe me, here is some guy that Republicans used to revere. A guy by the name of Ronald Reagan. Uh, you may have heard of him. Uh, here he is decrying the menace of gerrymanders. Back, he calls them gerrymanders back in 1988. And oh, there's also another guy in this clip right after him who says almost the same thing about partisan redistricting, a guy by the name of Barack Obama during his final State of the Union address in 2016. I think that this is a great conflict of interest to ask men holding office elected from districts to change the lines of that district to fit the new population. I think gerrymandering is, uh, is the basis of what, basically what takes place. I think we've got to end the practice of drawing our congressional districts so that politicians can pick their voters and not the other way around. So there you go. It really is a bipartisan issue, or at least it used to be, or it still should be. On Tuesday at the U.S. Supreme Court, it was once again a bipartisan matter, at least of sorts, as oral arguments on two different cases, one regarding what lower courts found to be the unconstitutional partisan redistricting of uh, one congressional district in Maryland by Democrats and the other case regarding some 11 unconstitutional uh, unconstitutionally drawn districts gerrymanders drawn by Republicans in North Carolina. As Stephen Wolf of Daily Coast Elections helpfully summarizes today, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two critical cases challenging a Democratic congressional gerrymander in Maryland and a Republican one in North Carolina that could determine whether the nation's highest court will finally start curtailing partisan gerrymandering or give mapmakers free reign to try to rig the lines to favor their party even when the other side wins more votes. Since the 1980s, the Supreme Court has repeatedly held that partisan gerrymandering could theoretically violate the Constitution. That, in contrast with their previously uh, very clear finding that racial gerrymandering is definitely unconstitutional, However, it, uh, the court has never actually invalidated any particular map on the grounds that it was a partisan gerrymander, claiming that the court lacks a standard formula to decide when and how to do so. Indeed, when both of the uh, these same cases heard Tuesday by the court came before the court last year, a 5-4 to four conservative majority sent the North Carolina case back to the lower court, by requiring the plaintiffs to prove that they were harmed in each individual district and not just on a statewide basis. And the court refused to expedite the Maryland case last year, which involved only one individual district. In other words, the high court punted last year. Both cases saw district courts strike down uh, the same maps once again 
in uh, 2018 after they were sent back down with the North Carolina litigators making sure they had plaintiffs from each of the individually challenged districts on board to show harm in each case in each district as the high court had claimed to need. Consequently, if the Supreme Court now upholds either of these decisions, it could establish such a standard against partisan gerrymandering, setting a far-reaching precedent that could finally begin to place limits on the epidemic of partisan gerrymanders that, as Steve Wolf argues, has now swept the nation. However, if the plaintiffs fail in these two cases, it could open the floodgates to even more extreme gerrymanders going forward with the next round of redistricting set to come after the 2020 census. But as Slate legal reporter and friend of the show, Mark Joseph Stern, who was in the courtroom during Tuesday's oral arguments before the Supreme Court, as he reports, going into Tuesday's arguments, the conventional wisdom was that the voting rights plaintiffs in both cases, Common Cause versus Rucho, that's the North Carolina case, and Benesek versus Lamone, that's the Maryland case, that the plaintiffs in both cases were doomed. Since 2004, he explains, the Supreme Court has wrung its hands about the problem of partisan gerrymandering without actually doing anything to stop it. Last term, last year, the judges were supposed to finally declare whether lawmakers violate the Constitution when they manipulate district lines to rig elections, only to then punt on that question. Justice Anthony Kennedy, the probable swing vote on that matter, then resigned from the court, leaving the fate of gerrymandering in the hands of his successor, the controversial hard-right Justice Brett Kavanaugh. On Tuesday, when the court once again heard challenges to political redistricting, there were few surprises. The justices have been through this before, at least until Kavanaugh spoke up in the second hour during the Maryland case. And while Mark says it's far too soon for voting rights advocates to declare victory. The justice, a uh, Maryland voter himself, uh, who is personally and directly affected by the gerrymandered district in his own home state of Maryland, sounded genuinely disturbed by Mapmaker's successful effort to neutralize Republican voters in the state of Maryland. If Kavanaugh sides with the liberals, Mark writes... The Supreme Court will, at long last, impose real constitutional limit limitations on this scourge to democracy. So could Brett Kavanaugh, of all justices, really end up being the swing vote here to bring a five to four majority decision that finally ends partisan gerrymandering? Well, that seems impossible to imagine, frankly. Mark Joseph Stern, who is not prone to being idealistic about such things, writes that, quote, by the end of Tuesday's arguments, voting rights supporters had a fair reason to be optimistic. Really? Well, we could use some optimism today, I think, but hard facts are always preferred, optimistic or otherwise. Joining us now for some of those facts today is Suzanne Almeida, she was uh, also in the courtroom for oral arguments at uh, the Supreme Court on Tuesday as uh, as as the uh, redistricting and representation counsel for Common Cause. They are the lead plaintiff in that North Carolina case, Common Cause versus Rucho. 
the uh, challenge to North Carolina's U.S. House maps found to be in violation of the law and the Constitution by a federal appeals court only to be put on hold by the Supreme Court before the 2018 elections and now finally reheard this week just before that Maryland case by the Supremes. Suzanne Almeida, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. So in a nutshell, well, did, did I get, did, am, am I generally right in my characterization first of the, the problem of gerrymandering that you guys are uh, trying to take on via the North Carolina case? Absolutely. So the North Carolina case is a particularly egregious case for a couple reasons. Mm -hmm. One is that we have an admission on the floor of the uh, General Assembly. Mm -hmm. Representative Lewis leaned into a microphone and said, this is a partisan gerrymander. Um, I drew, I wanted this map to say to be 10-3 because it couldn't be 11-2. And really with that... um, you know, that's, that's not the way that map drawing should work, and that's not the way that representation should work in America. Yeah, he just admitted it out loud, I guess, under the premise that we've seen from Republicans uh, in recent years that, well, racial gerrymandering, while that may be a problem, there's nothing wrong with partisan gerrymandering. No one has ever said, at least the Supreme Court has never said, that it is unlawful to partisan, to gerrymander on a partisan basis. Now, Republicans hold a 10 to 3 U.S. House advantage over uh, Democrats in North Carolina over this past decade, even though it's a very closely divided swing state. Obama won there narrowly in uh, uh, 2008. Romney won in 2012. I think in 2016 it went to Donald Trump, but the state also chose a Democratic governor. But uh, can anything but Republican partisan gerrymandering explain that you would end up with a 10 to 3 advantage for Republicans year after year in such a closely divided state? Absolutely not. This was not an accident, right? So not only do we have the admission, but we have statistical evidence showing that in randomly generated maps, thousands of randomly generated maps, the 10-3 partisan advantage that the Republicans have held on to is an outlier. It happens in something like 0.03% of the cases of Mm. those uh, randomly generated maps. And so we know that this wasn't an accident, not only because they told us, but because we have the uh, evidence to prove that. So if the case is so clear in North Carolina, and now I guess lower uh, federal courts have agreed at least twice that these are unconstitutional, what is the holdup at the Supreme Court to affirm these lower court rulings once and for all. I mean, the the computer statistics, as you note, are on your side. The admission by a state rep, David Lewis, uh, saying exactly why he drew these uh, maps. So, uh, what's the what's the holdup from the Supreme Court? There's no dispute on the facts in this case, and in mm-hmm. fact, none of the justices said anything to the effect of, "Well, we don't think partisan gerrymandering is a problem." Right? They they all accepted partisan gerrymandering is a problem and it is a threat to our democracy. What they're looking for is a standard, and that's where they have struggled in the past. We know that Justice Kennedy had given some options towards the First Amendment. We know that there's been discussion back and forth about what may possibly work as a standard, and we think in this case we have uh, a standard that will work, which is that if it's a, a partisan gerrymander, that we can prove the intent to gerrymander and an effect to gerrymander, and that that effect 
uh, cannot be explained by any other mechanism, right? That that's mm-hmm. not an accident. It's not political geography where people live. It's not self-sorting. That that should be enough for the courts to um, be able to distinguish between unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering and the constitutional limited consideration of partisan factors. Is it left up to uh, to you guys, to the plaintiffs, to common cause here to? Uh, demonstrate a standard that could be used in uh, all such cases? Or, uh, I mean, wh- why is that left to you? Why can't you just show that, look, the preponderance of the evidence clearly shows that these were partisan uh, gerrymanders that should be struck down? Why is it left uh, sort of to you guys to, to come up with something that could be applied to all such cases? That's an excellent question. And the biggest reason is because the court is not looking to just decide on this case. When cases get up to the Supreme Court, they are looking to be able to set standards, and they know that whatever they say will then be relied upon by lower courts, by state legislators, um, and other map makers Mm -hmm. in determining kind of what is okay and what isn't okay. So they're asking the advocates from both sides, quite frankly, what could a standard be and what does it look like in cases going forward? Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate and uh, also Ian Milheiser over at um, Think Progress and others reported that while uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh did not ask uh, too many surprising questions during the first hearing on the North Carolina case where Republicans were advantaged in as many as 10 congressional districts, that Kavanaugh appeared to grow visibly angry at the attorney representing the Democratic partisan gerrymander in Maryland, which hurt Republicans and happens to be the state where uh, Kavanaugh actually lives and votes. Do you share the uh, characterization of what happened there in the courtroom on Tuesday? I think that Justice Kavanaugh actually asked what we've been calling intellectually curious questions during both cases, right? Mm -hmm. The questions on proportional representation from some of the other justices felt like a trap. They felt like they were you know, asking the advocates to say something that was going to put them in a bad light. Mm -hmm. From Justice Kavanaugh, In contrast, it seemed very much like he wanted to get to a standard, and that the questions he was asking, both in the Common Cause v. Grucho's case and the uh, Benesic v. Limon, were really targeted to getting to that standard. Um, That being said, I certainly share the characterization that Justice Kavanaugh has a personal interest in the Maryland case. He knows how those districts are structured. He knows where the communities live. He knows what makes sense in Maryland and what doesn't make sense in Maryland, mm-hmm. and that he was pushing back quite strongly against the advocate for the state. Yeah, it was uh, interesting. Mark says that uh, he, he quotes Kavanaugh telling the uh, Maryland Solicitor General Stephen Sullivan, who was defending the maps here, he, he says to him, the stated goal was seven to one, meaning Democratic politicians declared that they wanted to create seven Democratic districts and just one Republican district. Kavanaugh said, I don't think you should run away from the obvious. Kavanaugh then ran through the geographic absurdity of the map, which apparently is a sprawling combination of rural counties and wealthy suburbs, reminding everyone that he is, in fact, a Maryland native and that this affects him directly. 
I guess we shouldn't be surprised that, oh, you know, when when judges find things or, or politicians even find things that affect them directly, suddenly they care about it. But uh, so d- do you get the sense from watching the argument that he was disturbed that his vote, in fact, in Maryland, and I believe uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is also a Maryland resident, that uh, did he show any signs that they were concerned that their votes were somehow being taken that might go for Republicans instead going to Democrats? I think partisan gerrymandering is one of those things that feels very vague. It feels very impersonal Mm -hmm. until you know the communities that are affected, right? And that's what we saw yesterday with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh is that they understood kind of how that fit into the broader context of the state and where they lived. Um, I certainly think that it, it was personal to a certain extent. They, they see how that would affect them. And that, that personal window into the world of gerrymandering and the effect of gerrymandering is a good reminder that this is not just about kind of this obscure legal standard or the way a map looks on a page. It's about how it affects the actual voters in the actual districts. And that's really what was so egregious in the North Carolina map. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that North Carolina A&T was split directly down the middle, which is the nation's oldest HBCU. That wasn't an accident, and we know that wasn't an accident. So that's really why this case is so important. It's because we're not, it's not about the legal standards, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the means to the end, and the end is fair representation for everyone. And uh, that reference uh, is to that school, that uh, traditionally African-American college that was split down the cent that the congressional district actually goes down through the middle of the school in order to dilute uh, the votes of the students on that campus. Ar- arguing for the... Um, North Carolina Republicans was uh, uh, Paul Clement. Uh, his defense of the map, uh, according to Ian Milheiser, was audacious. Uh, he spent much of the oral argument lambasting the very idea that the Constitution requires anything resembling proportional representation. In other words, it doesn't matter if a majority voted, uh, you know, d- across the entire state for Democrats. It doesn't matter that. Republicans end up holding the majority of seats. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that should be the case. So he's not wrong. In other words, as Ian notes, uh, any rule which requires a state congressional delegation to roughly approximate uh, approximate the actual partisan makeup of the state, there's nothing in the Constitution about that. He's he's not wrong, is he? No, he's, he's not wrong that the Constitution doesn't require proportional representation. The Constitution also permits proportional representation if a state decides that that is the value that they want to bring to their redistricting. Mm-hmm. It was really remarkable in this case that uh, the North Carolina legislature never defended um, whether or not this was a gerrymander, right? They, they're put, they're, the facts are undisputed on the record mm-hmm. that this was a gerrymander, that the, it was an extreme gerrymander. The impa- impact of the gerrymander was all well demonstrated and was never refuted by the North Carolina legislature. And so when they are arguing before the court, their argument is essentially like, we can do this, this is fine, there's nothing wrong with us diluting the votes of individuals in North Carolina. And we just think, quite frankly, that that's wrong. 
It seems there are essentially three arguments uh, that the courts, so-called conservatives, have been pushing overall, uh, sort of in and. Uh, correct me if I'm missing one or, or wrong here, but uh, one, uh, the legislatures who created these uh, maps, that they are perfectly capable of fixing these maps themselves. It doesn't require the courts to step in. Uh, two, uh, that voters in a number of states are already fixing it by themselves, by using ballot initiatives to create independent redistricting commissions. So again, the courts are not needed. The citizens are taking care of it. And then, of course, the third argument that even if they wanted to find partisan gerrymanders unconstitutional, there's no easy tool or test to determine when a district has been partisan gerrymandered. I know that there's a a test that was provided by uh, the plaintiffs here in this case called the efficiency gap, which sort of is supposed to measure such things. But Chief Justice Roberts has said in the past that that tool is, quote, sociological gobbledygook. Uh, The Republican State Leadership uh, Committee calls it uh, a political and intellectual sham and ivory tower nonsense. I think, though, those are the three claims that the court's conservatives have been pushing as to why they can't once and for all end partisan gerrymandering. Your response on on those three points, I guess. Sure. So I'm going to take the last one first. Mm -hmm. Um, So first of all, I want to be clear that the efficiency gap is an evidentiary measure, right? It is not a, we're not asking the courts to apply the efficiency gap to determine whether or not something is an unconstitutional gerrymander. It is a measure that we can present as evidence towards that end. Mm -hmm. So it's one of many pieces. There's Mm -hmm. other statistical measures. Uh, as well as we have measures of intent here, right? We've seen, we have a confession, in fact, that this is a partisan gerrymander. Mm-hmm. And there are other ways to look at the actual effect of the partisan gerrymander. So evidence of side, I think that it's really clear from the court's jurisprudence in the racial gerrymandering cases and other First Amendment cases that there are tests that could apply in this context if the court chooses to do so, particularly looking at uh, a legal standard that asks the court to get into whether or not there was a predominant partisan intent, right? If if the um, map makers over everything else mm-hmm. decided to uh, put partisanship, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one, and you can use all sorts of evidentiary measures to get to that point. And then the second is whether or not there was an effect, whether or not the gerrymander worked and it did what it needed to do in disenfranchising voters. And that is a really clear standard. That's a standard that is similar to what uh, courts have used in other contexts. It, uh, the question really now is whether or not the court wants to go down that path and wants to make a standard that it's used elsewhere apply to the partisan gerrymandering context. Did the On the other questions, the idea that, oh, uh, the courts shouldn't be in this at all, the legislatures can fix this themselves, they created the problem, they can fix it, or voters can step forward and pass ballot initiatives to to go to independent uh, commissions for drawing maps. Quite frankly, those are just incorrect, right? So we know in North Carolina, uh, they have been introducing legislation over the last probably 30 years at least to reform the redistricting process in that state. It has been introduced by Republicans, it has been introduced by Democrats, it has never passed. So the idea that legislators are likely to reform the process themselves 
without some push from the Supreme Court or some other external factors that don't exist right now is just not what we've seen in history. As far as the voters being able to put something on the ballot, less than half of states have ballot initiative processes. So while we saw exciting reforms in states in the 2018 election, and we are thrilled that that happened and that took a lot of hard work on the part of the states, that option isn't available everywhere. And quite frankly, when you look at those reforms, those uh, Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission ballot initiatives, mm-hmm. as Emmett Bondurant, our attorney, said in the arguments, those were passed over the dead bodies of state legislators <laughs> who fought hard against them. Mm. So this idea that the court has that somehow this is self-correcting or will fix itself through the magic of the political process just doesn't work. And that's because gerrymandering is about power, and it's about the people in power staying in power. And when the people in power have that power to make their rules and draw the lines, that's what they're going to keep doing. The um, what, what are we looking at now? What are the possibilities for what happens now? I presume uh, the, the courts will come down with their decisions in, in both of these cases in, uh, in June. And by the way, there's a very clear admission, I think, in the Maryland case as well from Democrats that, yes, that was specifically done to, to oust an incumbent Republican, essentially. So in both of these cases, you know, you, you've got admissions, confessions, if you will, from the mapmakers as to why. Why they did this. So uh, what now happens uh, when when uh, the court comes down with their rulings, presumably in June, would a finding uh, and it would be a surprise, frankly, that partisan gerrymanders are unconstitutional. Would that result in a whole bunch of states uh, challenging their maps now in advance of the 2020 election? think so um, for two reasons. One is that we know that redistricting will happen again right after that. So there may not be challenges with uh, because people will understand that those maps will be uh, open to be mm-hmm. redrawn with the court's new guidance mm-hmm. after the 2020 census. So that's one point. The other point is there's this notion that there isn't existing partisan redistricting, partisan gerrymandering litigation that's moving through state courts or federal courts, and that's just not true. That those are those are moving, and with the the Supreme Court's guidance on kind of what the evidence should look like, what the legal standard should be, that's just going to streamline those process and that process and filter out any cases that, quite frankly, don't meet the standard. If you lose. In North Carolina, is there a recourse at that point? Is there a, a, a state process in, in, in the courts or ballot initiatives that could change things for 2020? Or, or would we then be looking at a, yet another 10 to 3 GOP advantage in a year where uh, state lawmakers will then be selected to determine the maps to be used for the next 10 years after the 2020 census? These cases are really just a tool in the toolbox, right? So we're looking at, there's all sorts of avenues for reform. There's uh, work being done across the country to move reforms through state legislators, legislatures. Mm -hmm. There's reforms being moved um, via ballot initiative in some states. There's work at state court level to challenge based on state constitution, similar to what happened in Pennsylvania. So this is just one of many avenues to reform, but it is the avenue to reform that's going to affect the whole country, and that's why this is so important 
and urgent before the next redistricting process. Last question, uh, Suzanne Almeida. Is there reason, is is our friend Mark Joseph Stern uh, correct, that uh, is there reason now to be newly optimistic after Tuesday's hearing at the Supreme Court? And, and don't lie to me, Suzanne. I only want to know the truth here. Uh, did you uh, find some new optimism after those arguments on Tuesday? I absolutely think that there's reason to be optimistic. We are... Um, in a better position now that we have a sense of Justice Kavanaugh's interest and Justice Roberts, uh, and the, you know they've both really moved this discussion further. I think it is notable that the discussion on Tuesday was an, entirely on the merits of the case, which says to me that the justices are looking for a standard. They're not looking to punt again like they we saw them do last year. They're looking to actually come up with something that can be used across the country. So absolutely, I'm optimistic. Ian Milheiser concluded his coverage by saying when the Supreme Court began its session on Tuesday, Rucho and Benisek appeared certain to end in a 5-4 to four decision in favor of gerrymandering. Now, he writes, it looks like uh, Elena Kagan and Kavanaugh together could form an alliance that will produce a very different outcome. They may bring us the Holy Grail, he writes. Mark Joseph Stern says... Uh, If either Roberts or Kavanaugh swings left, they could ensure that the Supreme Court delivers its most important voting rights victory of the century so far. I will bring uh, both them and you, Suzanne, back here uh, to uh, yell at you about my disappointment if this doesn't turn out uh, the way we now all hope it actually might. Uh, Suzanne Almeida, greatly appreciate you joining us today. She is the Redistricting and Representation Council at Common Cause. She was in the uh, Supreme Court on Tuesday in this uh, landmark case, Common Cause versus Rucho. We'll see which way it goes. Suzanne, really appreciate you joining us on the broadcast today. Thank you so very much for having me. It was great to be here. You can get more info on Common Cause's important efforts to stop gerrymandering at commoncause.org slash redistricting. All right, got to get out. My thanks to our producer today, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it for free at bradblog.com and share it with all your friends. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. You'll find me at simply the Brad Blog. Also, thanks to those of you who keep us going by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate and signing up for a subscription of any amount you like to help keep us on your public airwaves every day. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 